Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. What a day, what a dollar. What a day, what a dollar. How did you enjoy Retro World Expo? It was great. I picked up things, and I had a good time, and I saw people that were nice. Anyway, we uh, we don't have anything from producer Doug. He's been uh, he went fishing apparently. Yeah, and he found a Commodore in the lake, which he gave to me. Oh, nice. So Zach, what have you been recently been playing? Seth, recently I've been playing The World Is Not Enough, the N sixty four James Bond game released by Eurocom in 2000. And it's a first-person shooter game that is pretty fun, but it's nowhere near, I would say, as good as GoldenEye 007 or Perfect Dark. It does have some positives. Uh, It's slightly better graphics than GoldenEye 007. has a slightly smoother frame rate, but I think it overall lacks the fun gameplay that you get with GoldenEye 007. Is that the one where you start in a bank? Yeah, you do start in a bank. Yeah, I remember that game. I I do think it's fun in the sense that it's more dedicated to the use of gadgets. For example, Bond has a spy watch that you can do different things with, such as stun people or use like a knockout dart or uh, use a grapple hook or a laser. So you've got a bit more options than you would in GoldenEye 007. So it does feel a bit more James Bondy as opposed to in uh, GoldenEye 007 where you're really just a dude who's running through buildings shooting down Soviets. In this, you've got a bit more of like, I don't know, doing like spy things like disarming bombs and like grappling up walls and just doing stuff that James Bond does in the movies. GoldenEye 007 follows the GoldenEye movie precisely. It's not GoldenEye's fault that Pierce Brosnan just does random things in that movie. It's That's true. That's true. World's Not Enough does have some annoying elements in some of the levels. For example, even in the very first level, I like insta failed because I was firing at a bad guy. I didn't realize that I had missed him and it hit a computer far in the back of like a room. The computer exploded and it killed a civilian. And I was like, I didn't even see the civilian. That's obnoxious. Now, I do think it's it's good that you fail missions if you kill civilians, because James Bond doesn't kill civilians. I feel like in GoldenEye, it at least gives you like a like a mulligan <laughs> if you like accidentally kill a scientist. Yeah, you gotta kill a significant amount. Yeah, I didn't mean to blow up the computer. It's not my fault that it exploded in a fireball and killed everyone around it. That was just a poor design on that computer's part. But in any case, I do think I I definitely have a, a soft spot for World's Not Enough, even though I think GoldenEye is a bit more of a nostalgic game. World's Not Enough, I remember being the game I spent a lot of time playing as a kid, specifically because you needed a memory card to save in that game. And we did not have a memory card that worked. We had a memory card, but I think it was broken. And I would get to a very specific part of the game, which was the stealth mission, and I would die a bunch, and then I would just stop playing. And then anytime I wanted to play the game, I would have to restart it from the very beginning. <laughs> so it essentially became a speed run of how fast I could get to the level I was terrible at. I don't remember if I've ever gotten past that level to this day. Like, I just haven't revisited it besides recently. And when I was playing it recently, I was only playing through the first couple levels. So the first couple levels, though, are fun. Uh, the first level, you you're in a bank in the second level you're in mi6 after it gets attacked by a terrorist and then the third level you're chasing a lady in the fourth level you disarm a bomb 
That was pretty cool. There's also apparently a PS1 version of the game. Uh, it was developed by a different studio, Black Ops Entertainment. They did the uh, pretty enjoyable Tomorrow Never Dies game, which is a third-person action game. So I might check out their World's Not Enough, because I liked Tomorrow Never Dies. I thought that was a pretty fun James Bond game, and I'm excited to see what they do with a World's Not Enough game if they did a very good job with Tomorrow Never Dies. Anyway, Seth, what have you been recently playing? Well, recently I've been playing uh back into the ex win three system i was going through the uh the amount of uh programs and games that are on it and i just thought to myself you know what i haven't played in a long time spider-man cartoon maker nice released in 1995 by knowledge adventure written by john semper jr who also wrote everything but primarily all of spider-man uh the cartoon that is except for i think five episodes or something so which means any animation in it written by john semper is canon because it also has Stan Lee signed on it. So in the beginning, one of the one of the movies you can watch, Spider-Man's like he's like running late for an appointment. I'm pretty sure it's Aunt May's birthday, and he's getting chased by Alistair Smythe's spider cameras, and who's he? This guy works for Kingpin and all that. And Spider-Man's mad because he's late for I think a birthday party. I didn't finish watching the whole cartoon, but in the beginning it has the credits, and the credits have John Semper Jr. and Stan Lee. I don't no if Stan Lee would have written any of this. I'm kind of curious if Stan Lee even knew it existed. You know what I'm thinking what happened is that John Semper wrote it and then sent it to Stan Lee and said, are you okay with this? And Stan Lee said, Excelsior! <laughs> and then he put a stamp on things. He put a stamp on it and it's been Stan Lee to prove. Because I imagine that's a lot, especially towards the end of Stan Lee's life, is imagine a lot what he did. In the game, you uh, make your own Spider-Man cartoons by placing backgrounds, you place characters on them, you you can have the characters move across the screen and each character had at least one animation loop, possibly two or three. And with Spider-Man, there's like 10. Um, and you can then save your movies and you can send them to anyone. And even if they don't have their own Spider-Man cartoon program, uh, it's great. You, you can make some really cool cartoons, very nostalgic. I made a cartoon where it was Alistair Smythe in an office and the Kingpin was in his way. And he had a little dialogue box that said, get out of my way, you but uh yeah but it's fun you can you can make some adult humored cartoons and send them to your friends if you ever really need to make them question your sanity if you're making spider-man cartoons yeah it's kind of like uh it's kind of like making an e-card but with spider-man oh my gosh i think for someone's birthday I'm going to make an e-card with Spider-Man, but not for you. Wow. Because you'll expect it. I can't make it for producer Doug because he listens to, at least he claims to listen to our episodes. It's true. So maybe I'll do it for somebody else as a mystery. I think the shock factor is more the confusion. Anyway, so that's uh, Spider-Man Cartoon Maker is what I've been playing recently. I'm thinking that for Extra Life this year, since we may be in a new spot doing it, the recording and live streaming of it, I think we're going to possibly have a list of games that are all ancient and that we're going to play through. Last year, we played through Journeyman and we made it through Journeyman up through Journeyman 2. Yeah, we beat Journeyman 1. Uh, we did cheat a little bit towards the end because I didn't want to get lost in the Mars maze. We also got very tired. Yeah, I think we were playing Journeyman 2 at like, what, 4 in the morning or 5 yeah, in the morning? There was a video for a while that was up of us, the classic gaming brothers, very exhausted, just bopping to the Journeyman music while we were exploring the maze 
and it was me reading from like an online guide going like left left right straight open the door left straight open the door right it was just that for like a straight hour maybe i hope it wasn't a straight hour that maze is not that big i know well there was a while where i think we got lost but uh yeah maybe this year we'll play some other games that are classic like spider-man cartoon maker maybe we'll make our own spider-man cartoons well today's episode we're going to be talking about a a game that is part of a series that um i don't think we've alluded to before we've definitely talked about like companies that have been associated with this series before um one in particular is origin systems but the game we're talking about today is thief to get into the history of thief the first game in the thief series was created by looking glass studios looking glass was founded in 1992 in salem new hampshire by paul neurath and ned lerner prior to creating looking glass paul was a developer with origin systems and led the design for the game space rogue a space flight simulator after the game was released origin systems moved from salem new hampshire to texas and paul decided he was going to stay in new hampshire and he stayed with their old studio their development tools and some leftover funds and he used these leftover funds to create a company alongside a friend of his ned lerner and that company would become blue sky productions not to be confused with blue sky software who made vector man blue sky productions would then go on to hire doug church a programmer who attended mit to work on their first project which they demoed at the 1990 consumer electronics show while at ces they attracted the attention of richard garriott and warren specter of origin and origin signed a publishing deal with blue sky they also provided blue sky with the license for the ultima series and a budget of thirty thousand dollars to work on the game ultima underworld the stygian abyss now they had thirty thousand dollars to work on this game but they did go over budget and ultima underworld ended up costing about four hundred thousand dollars which is a little more than 30 but ultima underworld ended up being a pretty successful game now ned lerner had his own company at this time called lerner research and had previously developed the games chuck yeager's advanced flight simulator f-22 interceptor and car and driver in 1992 blue sky and lerner research would merge and be rebranded as looking glass technologies after the merger the company would move to lexington massachusetts with their 12 employees while in lexington they released the game ultima underworld 2 labyrinth of worlds in 1993 and in 1995 they moved to cambridge massachusetts our fair city with over 40 employees after ultima underworld 2 looking glass technologies would release a few more games system shock in 1994 fight unlimited in 1995 terra nova strike force centauri in 1996 and the british open championship golf in 1997 one of these games it's not like the others one of these games is system shock i mean system shock probably is different because i think it sold the best at some point the company would be acquired by intermetrics and was legally renamed to intermetrics entertainment software llc but they were allowed to sell games as looking glass studios since they already built up kind of a brand identity shortly after the acquisition looking glass became independent again and would be incorporated as looking glass studios incorporated so their time with intermetrics was short and brief now at some point before they were renamed looking glass studios the team began work on a game based on an idea by ken levine ken levine who we talked about in detail in our bioshock episode uh, wanted to make a game that pulled influence from castle wolfenstein and diablo he envisioned an action role-playing game and threw around some various ideas one of the ideas was called school of wizards which sounds like a great game and another idea was called dark elvis oh i thought it was dark 
Elvis was he's dying. Evil Elvis. <laughs> Which I feel like would be an amazing game. <laughs> but instead was Dark Elves Must Die. And the third he had was Better Red Than Undead, which would have featured communist zombies. In Better Red for Undead, he imagined the game would be a sword fighting simulator. But the marketing team ultimately would kill this idea, which would have been set in 1950s Cold War, where the Soviet Union is overrun by zombies that can't be defeated by bullets. Now, I just want Ken Levine to like dig up all these old game concepts and then highly productionalize them like Bioshock and call it a day. Ken Levine, his ideas feel like something that like an AI would spit out at you every few hours. Some of them obviously worked. A fourth idea he had was called Dark Camelot, which would have featured King Arthur as the villain, Merlin as a mad wizard, and the hero would be Mordred. Come on, this is good stuff. It is good stuff. Mordred would have been advised by Morgan Le Fay, who's also evil, but not in this game. Guinevere would have been a lesbian that betrayed Lancelot and the ultimate plan would have been to steal the Holy Grail from, I imagine, King Arthur? Yeah, and like King Arthur is this tyrannical overlord and Merlin's this like mad wizard who is advising the evil King Arthur. It's kind of like Dragon Sphere in a way. It is, it is. Well, I haven't played a Dragon Sphere in a while. Oh, that's another one for Extra Life. Now, the game Dark Camelot became what would essentially they would work on. Uh, Warren Spector, who founded Looking Glass Studios Austin and formerly worked at Origin Systems, became the producer for the game. While they were working on the game, there was some confusion within the team structure, with the artist Dan Thrawn at one point stating, quote, we had no idea what the game was about until someone stumbled upon the whole thief gameplay where you're not just running out trying to chop people up. In the early days, the stealth portion reportedly just consisted of, according to designer Doug Church, having the guard look the other way. Uh, Paul Nureth would end up pushing for the thief gameplay to be the focus. So they essentially had this like game that they were building, and one of the components of the game they were building was you could be a thief, and people were like, we're going to stick with that. Let's stick with that. So in 1997, the game's name was changed from Dark Camelot to The Dark Project, and the design was changed to focus more on thievery and stealth. Levels that were intended for Dark Camelot would actually remain in the final game, though some of the aesthetics were changed, as what becomes Thief the Dark Project is a bit more like medieval mixed with Industrial Revolution. The team worked on designing physics that would work with the gameplay, uh, so they would make certain objects, for example, uh, burnable. And if a player chose to burn that object, it meant that that object would have to behave with other objects in the world, so that a player could choose to do something and not have it essentially mess up the rest of the world. Um, So this is kind of how they were designing this game. They really wanted players to feel like they could do anything, um, which included doing something that they didn't expect. They presented a draft of this game to their uh, higher-ups and began working on multiplayer support. At this stage, Ken Levine said a lot of the gameplay was inspired by the 1985 submarine game Silent Service, especially with the idea of a character being powerful until they were detected. But when they are detected, they become vulnerable, um, which I think is like quintessential to stealth combat in most games today. Uh, If you are hidden, your character almost always gets a crit on an enemy, and if they're discovered, your attack usually is, you know, normal uh, attack. But like in most games today, if you sneak up behind someone and like attack them, it's an insta-kill. Multiplayer in the game would consist of what was called theft match, which is a nice uh, little rhyme with deathmatch. A theft match would have small teams attempt to steal an object under a time 
time constraint. Full-scale development of the game kicked up in 1997, and a demo and trailer were presented for E3 1997. The game was also announced for summer of 1997, but they would soon announce that it would have to be delayed, potentially to winter of 1997 or 1998. Along the way, Looking Glass hit some roadblocks, specifically financial roadblocks. The company had an Austin branch that they ended up closing, and due to the closure, they lost several game programmers. Uh, these programmers would actually move to go work at Ion Storm and release the game Deus Ex. Uh, Levine also would leave the project in 1997, and Looking Glass would end up laying off half their staff in April. The morale for the project had dipped considerably, but staff continued to work on it, and this stress of working on the game with the low morale, however, caused certain team members, including the lead programmer, Briscoe Rogers, to voluntarily quit. Which wasn't really ideal because the game's AI system, which Briscoe designed, was still buggy. Tom Leonard took over as the lead programmer and got to work fixing the AI. He learned, however, that the code used to help AI navigate the world was unable to be fixed, so he got to working to building a new system. Using about one-fifth of the original code, he completed a new system in November of 1997. During this time, they removed multiplayer support, restructured the inventory interface, and removed the branching story missions. Tom's job was to focus the game into a single-player experience based around stealth, which they now renamed the project again from The Dark Project to Thief the Dark Project. This new title was actually inspired by a game that I enjoy, Vampire the Masquerade. In it that it was designed to be a more descriptive of the game itself. They would go through and reject various other ideas that were proposed, such as the ability to climb walls, drinking potions, and invisibility in potions. Is it just like Vampire the Masquerade because it was a thing, colon, something else? They literally based the name Thief the Dark Project off of Vampire the Masquerade because it tells you exactly what the game is. That's, that's fair. Yeah, like like in Vampire the Masquerade, you are a vampire. And you're trying to keep the masquerade. In Thief the Dark Project, you are a thief. And there is a dark project. <laughs> and you're doing a dark project. Maybe it's just a, is it a project about like using potatoes Volcanoes. to start. <laughs> <laughs> That is a dark project. <laughs> now, in the summer of 1998, the team was burning the candles at both ends and still dealing with numerous AI issues. Leonard was quoted as saying that the result was a game that could not be called fun. Eidos, who were serving as the publishers, began to grow skeptical of the team's vision. Development of the new AI was also halted because they needed to assemble a proof concept demos to keep Eidos from abandoning the project completely. So they kept being like, no, don't worry, we're actually working. They would have to stop like legitimate work on the project to compile these demos and being like look we have a game it's functional and then they would have to like start working on the ai again and then Eidos would come back and be like hey come on show us something three months before the game was intended to ship the problems had been resolved Leonard even noted that the game felt more entertaining than previous builds which is good since it's a video game <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and there's only a few video games out there that are just not entertaining and this would end up being a huge huge morale boost to the team to finish the final details before the project went gold, which means that it was being shipped and being sold and it's done. Video games don't do that anymore. They don't go cold. They just go early access to vaguely released. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> We're here, thief. You have to you have to wait till you hit gold. In November of 1998, it officially went gold after 2.5 years of development and a three million dollar budget. Thief's gameplay is set in a first person perspective. You take control of a character who must perform actions such as uh, crouching, climbing, running, and fighting to get through the mission. Levels are unscripted, with NPCs often behaving naturally. Sometimes a guard might stand still. Other times, when you play the game, that same guard might decide to go for a patrol. It, it really is different every time you play the game. This allows the player to have some sense of freedom in how they choose to get around and also provides some variety when you replay the game later. Each mission has a series of objectives, typically being related to stealing a specific item. The game is stealth focused, so you will need to stay hidden, evade, distract, or misdirect. There are various difficulty settings that the player can choose and you are allowed to adjust them between missions. Higher difficulty will add additional objectives like making sure not to kill any NPCs or obtaining a specific amount of loot. The game also has dynamic elements due to how you choose to play the game. So for example, if you do a certain objective in a certain way, it may change a future objective. Or if you fail an objective, it may result in a different objective being in the future. The game's AI can actually detect visual and audio clues. So that's one of the reasons you really need to be stealthy. You need to stay hidden and stay silent. You do have various weapons. There is a sword, a blackjack, which I looked up, and that's a type of club. I did not know that. You didn't know that a blackjack was a club? Did you know a sap is also a type of club? No, I know what a billy club is. No, there's a difference. Blackjacks and saps are similar to each other. A billy club is is not. A billy club is like a stick that you hit somebody with. A blackjack is like a soft leather knockout thing. And then uh, a sap is very similar to a blackjack. But if you want to knock somebody out, you hit them with a sap or a blackjack because it is a weapon designed to knock people out i didn't know i i just knew blackjack as a as a suit cards oh it's a game of cards yeah it's I'm a game of cards of, um, in a win I'm condition speaking, i'm thinking of a club <laughs> which is which is also another device you could hit somebody with man cards are violent anyway uh so yeah you have a sword a blackjack a bow and other items like lock picks or flash bombs certain items like the blackjack will knock out an npc while a sword will kill them because you can't really knock someone out with a sword the game is set in the city in quotes. It's a middle-aged kind of uh, city with cues of the Industrial Revolution. It's kind of this dark fantasy world. And you play as Garrett, a thief who spent his youth as a homeless pickpocket. You were trained by an individual named Artemis, who is a keeper, which is part of this special order. Artemis trains you to master your thievery skills. And as an adult, you are under pressure to join a crime ring and are the target of an assassination due to failure to pay protection fees. In retaliation of the person who tries to assassinate you, you decide to rob them and uh when you rob them you meet a woman named victoria who is the representative of an anonymous client that assigns you with the task to steal a sword from a rich nobleman named constantine when you steal the sword victoria reveals that she was actually hired by constantine to test you and she then tasks you with stealing something else the eye which is a uh, this mystical thing that's sealed within a deserted cathedral and basically the game then begins i mean there's more to the plot than that but that basically sets you up to play Thief. Now, Seth, how did Thief do? Despite the long wait, Thief the Dark Project released to great reviews and sold pretty well. 
1999, it sold 88,101 units in the U.S. alone and reached 500,000 units by May of 2000, making it Looking Glass Studios' most commercially successful game at the time. The game was nominated for Outstanding Achievements in Sound Design at the 3rd Annual Interactive Achievement Awards and tied with Age of Empires 2 for winning Outstanding Achievement in Character or Story Development. Overall, the game scored very well, getting 5 stars from GamePro, 8.9 out of 10 from IGN, 9.1 out of 10 from GameSpot, a 9.0 out of out of 10 from PC Zone. The criticisms the game did receive were when people would put it up against other first-person games at the time, such as Half-Life or Unreal, though reviewers were quick to note that the game's dark engine could go up against the Quake engine or the Unreal engine. The game was not a Quake game. Oh, no. Yeah. Or a Half-Life game. Like, they're very different games. And, like, Thief is a very slow game, and you are, like, shooting arrows full of water at fire and sneaking past guards. I think it's a it's a game that's prone to save scumming, which I tend to do a lot, which is when you quick save and then load whenever you make a minor error. But, uh, yeah, it's a fun game, though. I enjoy Thief. Zach, tell me about the future of Thief. Right. In terms of legacy, uh, in the years that followed, Thief the Dark Project has been fondly remembered, even being called one of the greatest games of all time by the publication's GameSpy. It would go on to inspire other stealth games like Assassin's Creed, Hitman, Splinter Cell, and Tenchu. The game has also been cited by many game designers, such as Mark Laidlaw and Emil Pagliarulo of Half-Life and Fallout 3 fame, respectively, as being one of their favorite games. In fact, I think Mark Laidlaw said of all the games he's ever worked on, he really wish he worked on Thief the Dark Project, like, in comparison to all the games he's worked on, and he worked on, like, the Half-Life games. The original game, Thief, was rebranded as Thief Gold, and was re-released in 1999 with additional levels and modifications to the original missions. Thief Gold is the version that you can actually get currently on Steam. A sequel, Thief 2 The Metal Age, released in 2000. This too was also well-received and sold well. In fact, Thief 2 would surpass 220,000 copies globally by the end of 2000, and drew revenue revenues of $2.37 million, though this was not enough to save Looking Glass Studios, who would officially close their doors that year. Ion Storm, who we previously mentioned as being the company that some former members of Looking Glass Austin would go to work for, would create a sequel to Thief in 2004 called Thief Deadly Shadows. This released to mostly positive reviews, and a reboot of the franchise, just called Thief, was released by Eidos Montreal in 2014 for PS3, PS4, Windows, Xbox 360, and Xbox One. This did not receive as positive of reviews, though it, I think, was still considered an okay game. It just has more mixed reviews from uh, various publications. Now, in terms of fan stuff, there is actually an HD mod for Thief Gold that was released in 2013, and a standalone remake called The Dark Mod has been in development since around 2009, and this originally started out as a Doom 3 mod, but expanded into its own standalone game in the id Tech 4 game engine. And that's Thief. That is thief yeah it's a fun game i uh described to zach as we uh started this episode i said thief is the game where if you really like the stealing everything in skyrim part of the game like if you just like going into people's houses in skyrim and taking everything from them including their like dishes thief is the game that you're looking to play now let's get into our retro rewind zach had me recently play chris sawyer's locomotion which was released in 2004 and is actually a spiritual successor to the game transport tycoon there is also a game called open ttd which is transport tycoon deluxe which is also available to download which is a re like mastering of transport tycoon which is something that you could check out as well. Uh, Chris Sawyer's Locomotion, however, is like playing Transport Tycoon, 
if it was set in Roller Coaster Tycoon. Uh, you go in, it's got the same splash screen as Roller Coaster Tycoon. You have you go in, you select different scenarios to play, except instead of building a theme park, you're building a transportation empire of trains, possibly boats, boat cars, and all sorts of things. It's funny because they were originally going to make the game just called Locomotion, but uh, it had to bear his name for legal reasons. But it is a fair representation of the original game. However, Transport Tycoon came out a while ago. Chris Sawyer's Locomotion came out in like 2004 which is a while after transport tycoon was released and it didn't do much to add to it in fact i actually like playing transport tycoon more than chris sawyer's locomotion i own chris sawyer's locomotion because i think i own everything he's done but i really like open ttd more there is also an open loco game in case you wanted to play an open source chris sawyer's locomotion game but I particularly like OpenTTD better. Uh, I like the, um, it's just more nostalgic and I'm more comfortable with navigating it and setting everything up. Though I did play Chris Sawyer's Locomotion long enough that I was able to bankrupt my company trying to get oil and the train never loading the oil and just losing money over time. Nice. So that's great. And I did, my character was uh, Sir Topham Hat and he was a villain. He was an oil baron. But in this version, he wasn't able to get his empire established and he failed. Next week, Zach, you can play the PlayStation 1 game Vagrant. Cool. I will. Now, Seth had me play Apocalypse, released in 1998 by Neversoft. You play as Trey Kincaid, who is portrayed by Bruce Willis. And Trey Kincaid is the former colleague of the evil scientist, the Reverend. The Reverend is uh, this bad guy who created a theocracy based on the idea of the apocalypse. And he has created the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And your job is to stop the four horsemen and the Reverend. Awesome game. The game is played like a twin stick shooter where controls are handled by the left joystick and combat is handled by the right joystick. You will constantly fire a barrage of bullets at enemies as you go through various industrial levels. You have to like leap over falling platforms and fight off these monsters and stuff like that. Just a wild game. I love it. It was such a fun time and the pickups you get are ridiculous. It's like you start out with a machine gun that just has unlimited ammo and then you pick up a beam laser which is just a big laser. Then you pick up a rocket launcher and then you pick up a flamethrower. It's just all the best weapons. Great game. I I say if you like things like Smash TV and Xenocrisis, you'll really like Apocalypse. It's like those games, but with like platforming, like you go places as opposed to just staying in one room. Next week, Seth, I want you to stay with the Bruce Willis theme because I want you to play the fifth element for the PS1. I will. I'm glad that you also enjoyed Apocalypse. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for joining us. If you wish to uh, listen to us, we release episodes on uh, every Sunday. Uh, We are available where you can listen to any podcasts. You can reach out to us and send us emails or criticisms or feedback to classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. We're at Classic Gaming Brothers. And on Twitter and Blue Sky, we are CG Brothers Pod. So follow us on all those social medias. And then like, subscribe, and give us high ratings. And that's all we ask for. It's not much, just a little. But Zach, is there anything else that I'm missing? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. And I've been Seth. And we have been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's That's right. That's right.